If you would uh, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, Matthew 6, verses 5 to 15, found on page 811 of the Pew Bible, if you need to use that. It is our custom at Grace Church to stand for the reading of the scripture text, and, uh, and then at the end, when I, I will say, um, this is the word of the Lord, and we respond, thanks be to God. So would you stand, please, for the reading of God's word in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows that you need, knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Is it possible? Is it possible to please God? Is it possible to please God? Well, this morning we're going to learn that we can please God in our prayer and that we can do that through some instruction that Jesus gives us here in his, in his word. Now, we must confess that people are often very hard to please. I was thinking back to about a half a century ago when I enrolled in the Virginia Tech Corps of Cadets as a freshman. And I remember that the upperclassmen were literally impossible to please, especially the sophomores. There was one particular corporal who had been chosen out of the whole cadet corps as one of the five or six uh, members of the color guard. These were the elites of the whole corps. Out of thousands of students, they, he was chosen, and he and, and four or five others were chosen to march in the color guard for their excellence in marching, their perfect uniforms, and their strict adherence to every rule. Unfortunately, this particular sophomore marched right behind me in the squadron formations every day to, to uh, mess. And he was relentless. Every day he would say things like, Rat Carol, you're bouncing. Rat Carol, your rifle is tilted. 
Rat, Carol, your shoes need shining. It was on and on and on like that. Well, fortunately, it only lasted for a year, so no big deal. But he was impossible to please. And when I come to the, the nature of God, it's amazing and surprising to me to learn that God is pleased when his people pray to him. And when they pray, pray according to the way that Jesus taught us to pray. We have been doing a study here on uh, praying, a praying people. And this is the second part of a message called pray, Prayer That Pleases God. We started a few weeks ago. I would like to take a little side trip for a moment to show you what happens when God is pleased with our prayer. In Revelation chapter 5, John has a vision of heaven, and there in that vision, he relates to the readers and to us what he sees in heaven. And there in heaven, he sees the Lamb of God, and he sees the throne of God, and around the throne, there are four living creatures and 24 elders, and then there's a vast host of people. And these living creatures, these elders, have two things in their hands. They have a harp, and they have golden bowls. And you look closer, and you look at the golden bowls, and in those golden bowls, there are the prayers of the saints. These are the prayers that have gone up to heaven, and they've been collected in golden bowls and preserved. And you know why? Because God is pleased with those prayers. He saves them. Like we might save some little artistic thing that our five-year-old did in kindergarten. He saves those prayers because they please him. And so, my friends, what I want to say right off the bat this morning is that praying people please God by beginning with the three God-related, God-focused petitions in the Lord's Prayer. We've read this passage already this morning. First petition that we're told to make is we should pray that God's name may be revered. Or as the scripture says it, hallowed be your name. Well, we are first, we would think first of all, what is God's name? If you read through all the scriptures, you find God introduced to us on page one of the Bible. The word used for God is El or Elohim, which is plural. Gives us the idea that perhaps God is not exactly what we thought. There is a plural word used for him. Uh, and that makes us question and wonder, what is he talking about? This Elohim or El and then El combined with other words like El Elyon, the God, the God who is over all, God Almighty. El Shaddai. And then later in Scripture, about Exodus chapter 3, God introduces himself to Moses with the word Yahweh from a burning bush that's not consumed. There Moses approaches and the voice speaks to him. And he's told to take off his shoes. And, he's, and Moses is commanded to go back into Egypt and to, to deliver, to uh, bring the Israelites out. Moses thinks quickly and he says, I'm going to need to know what to tell the people. Your name is, who should I say sent me? And God says to him, I am 
Tell them that I am sent you. I am. That word that spelled without vowels, W-Y-W-H-W, or Y-H-W-H, I should say. And the translators of the ESV Bible give us some options of how do you translate this. It could be translated, I am. It could be translated, I am, that I am. I am who I am. I am who I will be. Or I will be who I will be. All these are confusing terms and ways of saying it. But what's the point? The point is that we're supposed to be humbled by the fact that the name of God is a name that's mystical and mysterious to us, and, and it describes someone who is infinite, who's eternal, who's unchangeable, who we can't comprehend with our human minds. And so we have a name that we use, but we, we aren't sure. Later, Jesus will reveal him as Father, in this passage that we read earlier, Jesus said to say, my Father, our Father who is in heaven, our Father in heaven. The new slant on the relationship we have, these names of God in the Old Testament indicate who he is, his vastness, his greatness, his majesty, his authority. We can't comprehend him. And now... Jesus introduces us to one we are to call Father. Well, how does that happen? We learn later that it happens because Jesus himself is God incarnate who came. And he came to make us children of God. And so from now on, we call him Father. But we don't forget. He's also Elohim. He's also Yahweh. He's the same God who created all things and who lives forever and whose glory is beyond description. He is the one who is our Father, and He is the triune God. So what should we call Him? Well, a name is important, certainly. In any relationship, you want to know, what should I call you? When we meet somebody, sometimes that people traditionally will say, what should I call you? Uh, my niece, who is uh, working and living in Vietnam, married to a Vietnamese, her parents are here this morning, have told me that in Vietnamese culture, you have to have the exact right term for the relationship that you have. For, for example... It's an older aunt or a younger uncle or a cousin who's the same age or a younger sibling. All these different relationships have different names. And I think as Americans, we're not very patient with all of that Mickey Mouse of finding out what relationship do I have to you. Uh, we kind of smirk and say, eh, I don't think I need to worry about that. You're just John. Forget it. Uh, but with God, it's not the same. He wants us to hallow his name. He doesn't want us to talk to him as if he were just our buddy up in the sky. He's not the man upstairs. You know, 
He's God. He's the infinite God. So how should we hallow the name of the Father who has taken us as his children? Well, we probably need to start by confessing our need. Hallowed be your name. We don't know, Lord, how to hallow your name, but we ask you to help us. Help us to hallow your name. Don't let us, don't let us misuse it. Help us. And I think it's clear from Scripture that we hallow his name by praising him and by giving thanks to him in all things. After all, he's the one who made everything. And he has given us life and breath and everything. We live dependent completely upon him from day to day. And we need to remember that. He is glorified when we praise him and when we give thanks to him, when we develop that, that language of praise. I think uh, some time ago I shared with you how, much, how meaningful it has been to me to memorize some of the kids questions from the catechism, and I'm going to delve into those, some of those today. But the question four of the shorter catechism tells us, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, holiness, power, justice, goodness, and truth. That gives you words to say. It gives you words to say about God. It gives you ways to praise him, and I encourage you to do that. So in the, shorter in the shorter catechism, we have the question number uh, 101, and it says, what do we say in this first petition? I printed, put it up on the screen. I believe you can see it. Um, in the first petition, which is hallowed be your name, we pray that God would enable us, us and others, to glorify him in all the ways he makes himself known. And that he would order all things for his own glory. We pray that we would glorify him. That we would be able to do that. That all of us would be able to do that. That all the earth would be able to do that. For that is what we were made for. We were made to glorify him. We were made to live hallowing his name. And we do that when we do these sorts of things. And we ask him to be glorified. On the other hand, some of us may think, why is God so concerned about his glory? I mean, why is he worried about everybody glorifying him all the time and praising him? Why does he want us to gather here and sing praises to him? And isn't that what Satan was saying to Eve in the garden? Wasn't that what he said when he said, did God really say, don't eat the fruit? Oh, he did. You know why he said that? He said that because he doesn't want you to enjoy what he has. He's keeping you back. He's restraining you from all the good things that are out there for you. Oh, my friends, if we were to say God is an egomaniac, how blasphemous is that? We need to repent because we are called 
to glorify the one who gave us life and who sustains us from day to day and year to year over the years of our life as long as we live. And who more than that made a covenant with us through his son, Jesus Christ, a new covenant, a covenant that we'll celebrate in just a little while here at this table when we gather around and, and, and partake of the bread and the cup, his body and his blood for us. This is the covenant that Jesus made with his people so that we may call him Father and hallow his name. So if we would please God in our prayers, we begin by saying, hallowed be your name. We pray that his name may be revered. Next, we pray that his kingdom may be established. Your kingdom come. Now, you might think that that question or the question is, isn't the whole creation his kingdom? Isn't he king over all? Didn't he make everything? Isn't it already his? True, he made it all. He is the rightful king of all things. And yet here we live on a rebellious planet amongst rebellious people who refuse to hallow his name and recognize his kingship over us from the fall on. And yet even then, even back then, God told the woman, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And that's what happened over time. But God chose Abraham and the patriarchs, and he worked through them. He promised that through them all the families of the earth would be blessed. And then eventually came our Lord Jesus Christ out of the line of Judah to be the king, the rightful king, who will rule over all things. And so when we pray that his kingdom would come, we're praying that Jesus would come again in final victory and establish his kingdom for once and for all and that we would experience what he came to do and what he is doing now. So in the 102nd question of the shorter catechism, it tells us this, when we pray your kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced and others brought in, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. What are we praying for when we say your kingdom come? We're praying that Christ would return, that there would be a resurrection of all, that there would be final judgment, and that his eternal kingdom would be established in a new heavens and a new earth. We're also recognizing that all of, the, all of the options that the world offers us can't fix what's wrong with this world. The politicians can't fix it. Best technologies can't fix it. All we can do is pray. Uh, we can use the means that we have in the meantime, but God's ultimate victory is to be back, to be Jesus, have Jesus on the throne and him to command all things for his glory. So the second petition that we make that pleases God is to pray that his kingdom may be established. Your kingdom come. The third petition that we have 
in the prayer is to pray that his will would be done by everyone, everywhere. Or as the scripture says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, some of us might stop and think, isn't God's will always done? Doesn't God, isn't God reign over all things? I mean, after all, he knows when little sparrows fall. He knows the hairs of our head. Isn't he in con complete control of everything? And the prayer asks that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done in earth as it is in heaven. So, yes, his will is done in heaven perfectly. And on earth, well, let's think about it just a minute. Because there's two ways to use the term God's will. One is what we would call his preceptive will. That is that which God commands. He gives us his law. He gives us his word. He tells us what he wants us to do. Well, let's take an example. In the garden, he said, do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is his preceptive will. What he says we should do. But then there's another way that we use the term God's will. And that is what we call his decretive will. He has decrees that he makes. So after he has told us not to eat because we want to. And because we like the way it looks. And because we think it offers us something we, we need and would be good for us. We eat. We eat against his preceptive will, but not against his decretive will, because he doesn't stop us. We take of the fruit and we eat against his decretive, his preceptive will, but not against his decretive will. He knew that. He knew he would do that. He allowed us to do it. And then he uses that for his own good purposes. Romans 8, 28 is a verse you might have memorized. It says, we know that in everything God works for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. God takes everything and he recycles it for his own glory. It's an amazing thing. This is shocking, I realize. And sometimes it's hard to get a hold of. I remember September 11. 2001. Some of us are old enough to remember that. Some of us aren't. But on that day, when the planes flew into the Twin Towers and so forth and the Pentagon, people were asking themselves, how did God let this happen? Or why did God let this happen? And there were not a few voices that rose up to say, oh, God didn't have anything to do with this. God didn't want it to happen, but there wasn't anything he could do about it. See, his hands were tied by something. My friends, this does not give me any comfort whatsoever. Because as I understand Scripture, and as we understand Scripture, I believe, properly, when God, God has decreed all things that come to pass, even the evil that comes to pass, What about, what about the cancer? Yeah. 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 That's part of his decretive will. Do you have it? 
God knows it. He planned it. But he will use it for great glory. 9-11, yeah. God knew that. God wasn't helpless. God knows all things and every detail of every moment of every day throughout human history, throughout, throughout eternity. He is in control. So what are we asking in this third petition? Again, referring to the catechism questions 102 and 192. When we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we pray that God, by his grace, would make us able and willing to know, obey, and submit to his will in all things as the angels do in heaven. In verse or 192 of the larger catechism adds this, uh, to submit to his will in all things with the like humility, cheerfulness, faithfulness, diligence, zeal, sincerity, and constancy as the angels do in heaven. It's interesting. The angels are in heaven. The prayer is that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Who is doing God's will in heaven? The angels. How do they do the will of God in heaven? They obey him perfectly. Of course, they're confirmed in righteousness. They can't sin, which is great. But I think of the angels up there being sent off to do this and that task. And I think of, to myself, do you think that the angels in heaven, when they're given a, a job, they gather around the water cooler in heaven and they uh, say to one another, what, 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 what did the Lord send you to do? Well, I've been sent over there to Grace Church to watch over those little kids out there on the playground. They don't get hurt by, you know, somebody driving too fast. Oh, okay, that's good. I know there's people at Grace Church. I, I was there last week. You're on this week. Okay. I don't think they're going, oh, no, we have to do this again. I'm so bored with that. I hate this. Oh, Lord, where, am I, where did I get sent this week? I've been sent over to the Goldbergs to watch over those little kids. Oh, you got to go to the Robergs this week? Yeah, that was my job. Wow, they love the Robergs. They're a lot of fun. They'll keep you on your toes. They are doing God's will in heaven, and we pray that we may do God's will on earth as it is in heaven. This is the third petition that we're told to give, to make, to God. Pray that his will would be done. Pray that it would be done by everyone, everywhere, because eventually it will be. And so, my friends, here we are before God. If you would please God, I urge you to begin with these three petitions in your prayers or some form of them. We're not making this a, an absolute format that we follow without flexibility. Pray that God's name would be hallowed. Pray that his kingdom would come. And pray that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we are told that God will be pleased 
and that he will gather these prayers. And maybe you'll see them someday, somewhere in heaven, in glory, saved up in a golden bowl because God is pleased with your prayer. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that you would grant us faith to pray like Jesus prayed and pray like he told us to pray. I pray that indeed your name would be hallowed among us in our church and in all the churches where your name is lifted up. I pray that your kingdom would come. Lord, I pray that the day would hasten in which we are in your presence forever and you rule all things and we're confirmed in righteousness, never to sin again, but to enjoy the fellowship of you and of all your elect people forever. And I pray that your will would be done on earth as it is completely in heaven. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.